book of Daniel, chapter 4. This morning, we're going to turn our attention back to Daniel, chapter 4. But today is not going to be an exposition of Daniel, chapter 4. We did that last week. And you can go back and listen to the story and the things that we derived from the story. But instead, I want to use Daniel 4 this morning as a springboard to talk about what it means that God is sovereign in his universe. One of the things that uh, I found last week as I studied Daniel chapter 4 is that many people make an application from Daniel 4 with regard to the sovereignty of God. And so uh, I'm going to tackle a, I don't necessarily think it's a difficult subject. Maybe it, it, is, it is difficult for us to apply this, I think, in practice in our lives as, as to how exactly this works. But I am going to try to, to do some of that in response to, uh, to Daniel chapter 4. So if you would, would you bow your head with me and pray for me? Father, thank you for this opportunity to, to talk theology, to talk about your word, to talk about what it means that you are sovereign. And I pray that, God, you will use this morning to encourage us. Lord, we may come away still a bit confused, but I pray that nonetheless, at the end of this talk, Lord, when we, when we wrap things up and go home at lunch, Lord, I pray that we will be encouraged to trust you. So, Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of Daniel 4, if you weren't here last week, is the story of Nebuchadnezzar. It's his testimony. If you go and read it, you'll find that it really, Daniel's in the story, but it's in first person, most of it written by Nebuchadnezzar. And it is his testimony of what God did in his life. And he had a dream. In this dream, he saw a huge tree. That many people benefited from the tree, but these watchers came. We think they're probably angelic beings, but they came and, and they said, cut down the tree, keep only the stump and the root and the ground. And then he changes gears, not talking about tree anymore, but talking about evidently a person who goes insane. And for seven periods of time, this person would live as an animal uh, out in the field being rained on. At the end of seven years, this person would come to his senses and recognize that God is the sovereign over the universe, and, uh, and, and this person would recover. And up to this point, the point of this event, I am quite sure that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar certainly thought of himself as the sovereign. He thought himself as the sovereign king over all the earth. But after this episode, he acknowledges that he is not the sovereign, that God is the sovereign. You'll remember that the angelic watchers said to him, and again, I'm adding the word angelic, but, but you'll remember they said that this is going to happen to this person in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom, whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. And when Daniel interprets this dream for, for Nebuchadnezzar, because you remember he calls for Daniel, and he interprets it, and Daniel says that this person is going to live as an animal until he recognizes that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Man is not king, God is king. In fact, he is the king not, over, not only over a kingdom, but over the earth, and he is the king of the universe. And eventually Nebuchadnezzar would acknowledge this because of all that he went through. In fact, he would say that God's dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And not only that, he would say that this kingdom 
this kingdom endures. I just said that. I read the quote. He, he says this kingdom is going to go on forever and ever, and God is the eternal ruler over this kingdom. Now, to say that God is sovereign has become almost common in our day and time. It's become somewhat cliche-ish, and different people have different meanings for it. So I want to talk about what it means that God is sovereign, and I want to begin by quoting Paul Miller of the Gospel Coalition. And he says, when Christians affirm that God is sovereign, they often mean that God is in control. Paul Tripp, for example, wrote in his excellent book, Lost in the Middle, that God truly is sovereign. There is no situation, relationship, or circumstance that is not controlled by our Heavenly Father. The problem is that the English word sovereignty does not mean control. The U.S. government is sovereign within American territory, but that does not mean that the government controls everything within American borders or causes all that happens. If you look up sovereignty in the dictionary, you'll not find control as part of the definition. You'll not even find it as a synonym for the word. Sovereignty means the rule as king over a realm. The Cambridge Dictionary says that the sovereign is the king or the queen, the person having power to govern a country. The Webster Dictionary says sovereign is one possessing supreme political power or sovereignty, one who exercises supreme authority within a limited sphere. So when we say that God is sovereign over his creation, what we mean is simply this, that God is the ruler, he's the ruler over all. He has the right to rule and he does rule as sovereign God. But to God's sovereignty, we also have to add another, another part of his being, another characteristic of his entity, and that is that God is omnipotent. And by that we mean that he has all power. He can do whatever he pleases. He has the power so that no one can stay his hand. He does whatever he desires. Nebuchadnezzar re recognizes this in verse 35. He says, all the, this is after his experience, his mind has been restored to him. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he, that is God, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand to say, or say to him, what have you done? And the Bible affirms this idea of God's omnipotence over everything. In Isaiah 46, verse 9 through 11, it says, I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Psalm 40, I mean Isaiah 46. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. But herein lies the question, and some would say it's a quandary, but it's a question, it's a question, and it is this. If God is king, that is he's sovereign, he rules over his universe, and he is all-powerful, how does he exercise that rule? How has he chosen to exercise that rule? Another way of asking the question might be this. How does God choose to exercise his limitless power in his rule over all of creation. And I, and I tell you this, and, and I ask this question almost rhetorically, be, because I, I often think about this. This is a question, I, I won't say that it keeps me up at night, but at night when I'm going to bed I think about this. Throughout the day I often meditate on this question. How does a God who is ruler over all and omnipotent in all his ways so that nobody can stay his hand, how does he choose how does he choose to rule? 
I, I'm not, I, I have no intention of necessarily trying to answer this this morning. I am going to share with you some things that I believe, and I'm going to share with you some things I know from Scripture for sure. And like I said, hopefully at the end of this talk, we'll all be encouraged to trust God. My wife told me, as you talk about this, make sure that there, there is something positive for us in this. And there is, okay? And there is. All right, it seems like from history there are three basic thoughts as to how God exercises his rule over his creation in his omnipotence. And the first one is this, or the first, the first thought that I'm mentioning, and, and, and let me say this, we, none of us are monolithic, and, and, and so by that I mean that we, we're just all over the board. So I'm going to kind of give you, a, uh, I'm going to kind of give you three thoughts, if you would, maybe, maybe two thoughts on, on either end and then something sort of in the middle, but people line themselves on a spectrum. They'll line themselves up on this whole spectrum. Everybody follow what I'm saying? I'm going to give you three basic points, but people kind of line up anywhere in between these two and in between these two. Here's the first one, okay? And that is that God rules, but only in the sense that he's creator. He exercised absolutely no control over the universe he created. Uh, historically, this thought has been likened to a God who is a, a cosmic watchmaker, and he makes a watch, he winds it up and lets it go, and then he stands back, sits back, goes on vacation, and I'm being a little bit, you know, uh, making fun, I guess, but he goes on vacation, and he's really not involved. He sets up natural law, and natural law basically interacts with the choices of men in what is, is what is. God is the first cause, but only in the sense that he's the creator, but he has no more involvement in what happens in our world. People believe that God exists, but he's disinterested, uninvolved in creation. Now, the philosophical, theological term for this thought is theism, or excuse me, it's deism, excuse me, deism. Almost universally, people believe that Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were deists, but, but not everyone does. They believe that God set it in motion, and it just, it is what it is. Now, I personally have some problems, biblically, with uh, deism. Uh, first, it makes God to be an uninvolved, unaware creator, but that seems to contradict what he says about himself in the Word of God. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear you are more valuable than the many sparrows. One of the things that God says about, about his involvement in our world, in the world that he has created for us, is that he, he knows even the number of hairs on our head. And not a sparrow falls without him. And we don't know if it, without him causing it or without him knowing about it. But without him, two sparrows don't fall to the ground. Second, uh, this makes God to be an unloving, uncaring creator, which I believe also readily contradicts how he's revealed himself to be in Scripture. Romans 8, 37 and 39 through 39 say, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor power nor height nor death nor any, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the, the scripture seems to report God to be this loving father who says nothing can separate you from my love. And let me say this, for those of you that are, are really deep thinkers, I realize that I'm proof texting. I realize I'm pulling one text out seeking to make my point. I understand that, and that's not necessarily the way to do this, but we don't have enough time to do it any other way, and you may disagree with my proof text. But, but I, I, I have a problem with deism because it makes God uninvolved, and that's something I think he contradicts. It makes him unloving and uncaring. That's something I also think he contradicts. And, and it, also, it also contradicts the idea that God is specifically working in our world. 
I mean, he says on numerous occasions, here's just two. These are favorites for people. Genesis 50, 20 says, As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people's lives. And if you know the context of that verse, it's where Joseph's brothers are scared to death that now that dad's gone, Joseph is going to take his vengeance out on them. And he says to them, you meant what you did to me for evil, but God meant it for good. So God is at work bringing about good through what you did for evil. And and so what that verse tells me is that God is very much involved in what's happening in our world, bringing about things that he desires to bring about. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in, the, in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered, now listen, over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, according to that verse, God had a predetermined plan that he was working out. And so, you know, the scripture says God's not off on vacation. He's not disinterested. He's not uninvolved in our world. He's very much involved in our world. Now, the second thought, you know, some might consider a pendulum swing to what I just said. And and, and in this view of the sovereignty, God's rule over his creation, empowered by his omnipotence, it is that he is the initiating and controlling factor of everything that happens in the world. He is the cause of all that happens. And, and, and folks, on, and let me say on this side, I won't say extreme because so many godly men and women hold to this, but they believe that God uh, is the cause of even that which is evil. Now, it's a mystery how God can be the cause of evil and not be implicated in the evil himself, but that's a mystery that some would hold to. In this view, things are not happening by, well, they may be happening by natural law, but behind natural law, God is, God is actually doing all things, even human choice. Uh, but instead of everything being, but instead everything is, is fixed and determined by God. In this view, even evil is caused by God. One theologian of old says, how foolish and frail is the support of divine justice afforded by the suggestion that evils come to be, not by God's will, but by permission. It is quite frivolous refuge to say that God obtiously, <laughs> I'm, not even sure I'm, I'm not even sure I'm saying it right, but I, it's obtiously, I believe, permits them. Do what now? No, it's not obtuse, it's obtiously. Y'all can look it up. I looked it up, but I can't even remember what it means. It is quite frivolous, but we get the idea. It is quite frivolous refuge to say that God permits them when Scripture shows him not only willing, but the author of them. Who does not tremble at these judgments with, with which God works in the hearts of even wicked whenever he wills, rewarding them nonetheless according to their desert? Again, it is quite clear from the evidence of Scripture that God works in the hearts of men to incline their wills just as he wills, whether to good for his mercy's sake or to evil according to their merits. A more contemporary theologian says something similar. He says, God brings about all things in accordance with his will. In other words, it isn't just that God manages to turn evil aspects of our world to good for those who love him. It is rather that he himself brings about these evil aspects for his glory and his people's good. This includes, as incredible and as unacceptable as it may currently seem, God having brought about the Nazi brutality at Birkauer or at Auschwitz, as well as the terrible killings of Dennis Rayner and even the sexual abuse of a young child. 
Now, I know the person doesn't necessarily mean it the way I read that, right? But, but you get the gist of the point I'm trying to make. Paul Miller, who I quoted earlier from the Gospel Coalition, saying concerning sovereignty, meaning rulership, not control, goes on to say this. Once again, it is true God is sovereign. It is also true he's in control of everything that happens, and he causes all that happens. But that is the doctrine of God's providence, not his sovereignty. So though Miller affirms God's sovereignty as meaning God's kingly reign over his creation, uh, Brother Miller goes on to say that God is actually the controlling cause of all uh, things that happen. Now for some, this truth that God has to cause all things to happen in his sovereignty and his rule, if not, he's not sovereign, if he's not the cause of all things, somehow that removes his sovereignty. I... You know, that ends up, I think, if you would, meaning, excuse me, I didn't say that right. I, what I was trying to say was some folks say that if, if God is not the controlling cause of everything that happens, then he's not sovereign. And so sovereign necessitates control and causal control of all things. Now, I have a few problems with this view as well from Scripture. First, I, I think it makes God the author of sin and evil. I can't get around it. I, I try to get around it, but I can't. If God's sovereignty must dictate that he be the initiator of all things, the first cause of all that happens, and if not, he's not really king, then that must mean that he is the originator of evil. But the Bible says that God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God is light, 1 John 1, 5 says, and in him there is no darkness at all. And, and one, I didn't look it up, but in the Old Testament, God says, there's not an evil thought ever entered into my mind. So there must be things that God does not cause or determine, evil things. Second, to me, it goes against the constant admonitions in the Bible for men to respond to God in repentance and faith. In other words, if God holds us responsible for our actions and our decisions, there must be things in this world that God chooses not to control, i.e., I think the responses of men. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 says, God says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by holding fast to him, for this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. And the third thing that I want to say that, that causes me to stick on this particular understanding of God's sovereign rule with his omnipotence is this. It's not a, I don't think it's a biblical argument so much as it is just a, maybe a natural argument, but I believe that, that God has set up the world to work by natural laws. And they are so precise and so constant that men can look into the future and say there's going to be an eclipse 100 years from now at this particular time, and here's where it's going to be, and this is where it's going to cross the earth. And they can do that with such precision because God has set up natural laws, and I believe he rules his world through the natural laws that he has set up. So when a hurricane is heading towards the coast, we have a pretty good idea when it's going to hit and where it's going to hit because God is operating his world through universal natural laws. If you jump off a skyscraper, you're not going to float upward, you're going to fall. If you throw guys into a furnace heated up as hot as it will go, you will die, but not always. And so that brings me to the third 
the third understanding of sovereignty. And this is the one that I would ascribe to. It's the one I think that is, is most biblical, but yet at the same time, as, as you'll see as I go along, I, I don't really, I can't even answer, I can't answer the question that we all want to know, which is why, God, do you do this and not that? The third position is a mediating position between these two, I think. And in this understanding, God exercises sovereignty, his rule over his creation, by superintending his creation and leading it to where he's promised it is going to go, but by not exercising causal total control, nor is he uninvolved. The Bible firmly says God is in the heaven and he does whatever he pleases. The question is, what does he please to do? What is the choice he is pleased to make? Now, I want to say this. I agree with both the earlier positions that I just mentioned, the, the uninvolved and the control, the causal control of all things. I, I agree with both of those positions that if that's what God wants to do, he has every right to do that because he's God. He sits in heaven and he does whatever it pleases him. The, the question is, is that what pleases, is either one of those things what God is pleased to do? Now, I don't think so because I believe the Bible teaches that it pleased God to give men, you and me, a certain level of autonomy and separateness from himself. Let me describe Psalm 115. That's the verse that says God sits in heaven and does whatever he pleases. But verse 16 says, The highest heavens belong to God, but the earth he has given to mankind. So this is why he says to Adam and Eve, he says, rule over the earth. It's why Jesus said, pray things like this. Your will be done on earth, God, as it is in heaven. Things which make absolutely no sense if God is the causal control over everything that's happening. If God is causing all things to happen, then, then it makes no sense that God's will would not be done on earth because he's the cause of what's happening. If the all-powerful creator chooses to refrain from causally controlling every aspect he creates, that in no way, I think, denies his eternal omnipotence. In the same way that I could have forced food down my children's throats when they were two years old, you know, I could have sat them down, held their mouths open, taken my finger and, and pushed food down their, food, down their mouth. I chose never to do that, by the way. I chose never to do that. But that didn't take away from my ability to do that. So God in his omnipotence, and I believe the Bible affirms this, that, that God does whatever he wishes, but one of the things that I believe he's wished to do is to give us some degree of true creaturely freedom and autonomy from him. A.W. Tozer, you know, A.W. Tozer spoke to this idea of God giving men a degree of autonomy. Listen to what he says. God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from beginning has fulfilled the decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not counter, he does not, he does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it, inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom God has willed to give man limited freedom, who is there to stay his hand or say, Why did you do that? Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. 
So I think that's exactly what we find in our Bibles from Genesis, the early pages of Genesis to the pages, to the last pages of Revelation. Man is making decisions for which he is responsible. Yet, God is always superintending his creation. Now listen, to bring about his ultimate revelation of Jesus and the establishment of Jesus' kingdom on earth, which will never, ever pass away, a kingdom free of sin and a kingdom free of corruption. Now, even if you agree with how I've laid this out, and you say, well, that's, that's kind of how I think it as well, right? Even if you agree with me that God exercises kingly rule, not with disinterest or causal control, but, but rather being involved in setting direction, it still begs the question of how much control does God take over our world and our affairs? Are you all tracking with me? I hope I'm not boring you. This is, this is an exciting subject for me, and, and I, it's exciting because it's, a, it's something I, I really want to understand. And, and so did you follow what I just said? Even if you agree with me that God is, God is not the causal control of everything and he's not absolutely disinterested, but he's superintending his creation, that still begs the question, how much involvement is God exercising over his creation? How much control is he actually operating with in, in, our, in our world? Now, some say he has no, no control. Some say he has all control. Um, and, and so let me give you an instance. Two Christian moms, both love Jesus, both follow Jesus with all their hearts, both have three little children, both have loving husbands, both develop breast cancer. But one of them dies, and one of them does not. The group that says God's uninvolved says it's all a matter of natural laws and medicine and all of that. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just what it is because it's, it's, the, it's the natural way that God's set up and sin and all of that. This group over here says, no, God chose one to die and one to, to live. He made one live, he made one die. I, I just don't think either one of those things represents how God has set himself up in Scripture or in the person of Jesus. And as perplexing as that question is, why did one sister live and one sister die, I, I can't even answer my own question, but I, but I want to say it's not as simple as either one of those two things that I just laid out for us. And so what I'd like to do this morning in, uh, in the few minutes or the minutes that I have remaining is I, I want to give you, since I can't answer the question, I mean, it's easy for me to say, well, you know, God had nothing to do with it, or God had everything to do with why one lives and one dies. And my position is somewhere in the middle that God has indeed set up natural laws and all, but, but that he is still superintending his creation to bring it to, to a certain conclusion, and he, and he is involved in our lives. Let me share with you some principles that I operate with and I try to think about as, as I'm trying to understand God's sovereign rule over his, over his kingdom and the fact that he's omnipotent and I didn't even mention the fact that he's omniscient and knows everything. So how does, how does what are some principles to govern God's rule over his, over his kingdom? Let me give you six. Here's the first one. God, and this is, this is God primarily rules through natural law that he has set up. And what I mean by that is God has established natural laws that govern the universe, and he submits himself to the laws that he has set up so that the world operates in a certain way. These laws exist in the universe because God is our gracious creator who is logical. He has imposed these laws on his universe. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. 
So if you would, God exercises his kingly omnipotent rule through the natural outworking of these natural laws. Jeremiah calls them ordinances of heaven and earth in Jeremiah 33. Answers in Genesis says it this way, God's logic is built into the universe. So the universe is not haphazard or arbitrary. It, it obeys laws of chemistry that are logically derived from the laws of physics, many which are to, can be logically derived from the laws of mathematics. The most fundamental laws of nature exist only because God wills them to. They are, they are the logical, orderly way that the Lord upholds and sustains the universe he has created. And, and let, me go, let me go back and say folks that believe that God is the causal control would, would probably agree with what I'm saying here, but with a different nuance in it being that God is still making everything happen or causing it to happen the way it does. What I'm trying to say is that God has indeed set up a world that works by natural law. Now, that seems obvious to me. I mean, I, I, I'm going to try to mention it, prove it biblically, but it seems obvious to me that, that God has done that. And the reason I say that is because all the advances in science, they've been made because this is true. Because natural law is true, and it's logical, and it's consistent, and it doesn't vary. It doesn't change. So again, you know, if you step off of, of a 50-story building and you defy gravity, you will fall. You will not float 100% of the time, according to natural law. There is never one time when you're going to step off the building and, you know, in and of yourself, you're going to float as opposed to fall. Now, even Jesus noted this when he pointed to the consistency of nature. In Matthew 16, verse 3, he says, And in the morning it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and has a threatening look. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but cannot interpret the signs of the time. In other words, what he was saying is this, that natural laws exist, they govern the universe. You can look out and see red skies in the morning, sailors take warning, red skies at night, sailors delight. In other words, there's certain things about, about creation that work the same way. Natural laws exist and govern the universe. But here's something I want you to understand. They exist because a sovereign, omnipotent king made those laws and keeps those laws in place. He decides those laws operate in our world. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of his glory, talking about Jesus, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is still upholding the universe. Colossians 1.17, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What that means is that the world operates by natural law, but it does so because God desires for it to be that way. And the day that God desires for it not to be that way, it will not be that way. In fact, can I make a suggestion here? And, and this, again, this is just Jimmy thinking. In the new heavens and the new earth, evidently natural laws are going to change. Let me tell you why I say that. Because there's not going to be hurricanes that come through and decimate and kill thousands of people. There's going to be tornadoes that are going to rip homes to, to pieces. So those things happen because of thermodynamics and all the laws that God has set up. So for that not to happen in the new, in the new heavens and the new age, God's going to change some of these things that govern our universe. Here's my second principle that, that I seek to, as I try to understand God's kingly rule in, in, in his world. Here's the second principle that I know is true. God is, God in his kingly rule can and does break his own natural laws. I just got through telling you that he rules by natural law, but he is king and he sits in heaven and can do whatever he wants. And there are times when God chooses to blow up his natural laws. Daniel chapter 3, we saw that, didn't we? 
Three men are thrown into a fire that's heated just as hot as it can be, and they do not die. Not only do they do not die, but there's not even the smell of smoke on them. How does that happen? God violates his own natural law. He protects them in the midst of that. In the Old Testament, there's the story of Joshua fighting the Canaanites. And, and in that story, we read that God extends the day. I don't remember if it's 12 hours or 24 hours, but he extends the day. God violated natural law to do that. In some form or fashion, he, he broke his natural law. And we can go through our Bibles and we can find time after time where God either suspends, breaks, or contradicts his natural law. In other words, if, if nature, or the laws of nature had been left to carry forward what they were going to do, it would have had a different result, but God intervenes. Now let's be honest, let's be honest. God in his sovereignty and in his rule doesn't choose to do that often. Would you agree with me? I mean, let's be honest. God doesn't choose to do that often. Why not? Or what? No, no, I can't answer the why not, right? Can't answer the why not. What do, we, what do we call it when God does do that? They call it miracles, right? And one of the reasons they're called miracles is because they just don't happen that often. So why does God in his sovereign kingly rule and his omnipotence choose to break the natural law here but not here? Why, why did he do that for you and not for me? or vice versa. And, and that's a rhetorical question. That's a question that we cannot answer, but it's a question where God says, I want you to trust me in my sovereign rule over the world. Number three, God in his rule sometimes, maybe often, determines causally what is going to happen. And what I mean by this is there are times, maybe many times, when God, maybe more times than we realize, when God actually is, he is the cause of what is happening. I mean, it's not natural law. It's, it's not because this is the course of what God has set up. It is because God is making it happen by his own decision, by his own sovereign rule, and by his own omnipotence. He is bringing it about. So in our story from last week when Nebuchadnezzar goes insane for those seven periods of time, he did not go insane because, because naturally he was going insane. He went insane because God made him go insane. And God made him go insane for seven periods of time. This was God's predetermined choice. It was his predetermined causal event. God caused him to go insane. And one of the things we need to remember is God has retained the right to rule as he pleases. And the watchers said to Nebuchadnezzar, what is happening to you is happening so that you will recognize that God has the right to give the kingdom to whoever he wants. Because he is Lord. Because he is king. He can choose to do whatever he wants. Nebuchadnezzar realizes this at the end. He says, no one can ward off his hand to say, what have you done? The Bible is really, really clear. There's nothing God cannot control. Not at any moment, not at any time, not in any sphere of life. God can control anything he wishes. He can control whether you live or whether you die. He can control whether you're sick or whether you're healthy. He can control anything. The Bible says he can control the roll of dice. He controls the sparrows dying even. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27, this is kind of a continuation of what we read from Acts chapter 2. But uh, Luke writes, the church says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, 
whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purposes predestined to occur. Jesus died at the predestination of God. He died because God had predetermined that he would die. In fact, the Bible says that before the foundation of the world was ever laid, Jesus died in the mind and heart of God. What does that mean? That means that God had predetermined that Jesus would go to the cross and die for us before God ever, ever started this thing that he's created. All right? But here's where I disagree with the position that I gave you earlier that says God is the causal control behind all that happens. And I would say just because God causes some things to happen in the Bible does not mean that God is the cause behind everything that happens in the Bible. If God is the cause of all things, then then none of his exhortations to repent, to choose, to walk, or do anything have any meaning if the ultimate responsibility and cause behind all things is God. Some appeal to the verse that says God works out all things according to the counsel of his will. And they claim that settles it. He's working out all things according to the counsel of his will. And I totally agree with that verse. God is working out all things according to the counsel of his will. The question is, what is the counsel of his will? What does he will? Is his will to be the cause behind everything that happens in the world? Or is his will to rule through natural law and the free choice, to rule over natural law and over the, the free choices of men, the sinful choices of men even. C.S. Lewis said, God has made it a rule for himself that he won't alter people's character by force. He can and will alter them, but only if the people will let him. In that way, he has really and truly limited his power. Sometimes we wonder why he has done so or even wish that he hadn't. You know, when I read that quote from C.S. Lewis, I thought about that. How many times have I wished that God would take my brother and just make him believe? How many times have I wished that God would just take this person and just make them not addicted? I mean, that's what, that's what we want, isn't it, at times? When we see our loved ones hurting. But apparently, this is C.S. Lewis again, but apparently God thinks it worth doing. That is to limit his power and to not make people do everything. He would rather, that was Jimmy's commentary, but apparently God thinks it worth doing. He would rather have a world of free beings with all its risks than a world of people who did right like machines because they couldn't do anything else. The more we succeed in imagining that a world of perfect automatic beings would be like, the more I think we shall see his wisdom. Now, let me not get too far off my point because my point in this, in this third principle is this. And that is that God can and does cause so many things in his universe. He is not, he's not limited himself to not do that. So Ananias and Sapphira died not of natural causes, but because God killed them. And, and on and on I could go. God's, God's sovereign decision to cause things, and things sometimes we don't like. Number four, and these will go quickly. God in his kingly rule is always aware. God is not aloof. He's not unaware. I've already made this point. But Psalm 139 verse 1 says, listen to this. O Lord, you have searched me and have known me. You, you know when I sit down, when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from far off. You scrutinize my path, my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is 
too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. God in his kingly rule is never unaware of what's going on in your life. He's never, he's never aloof. He's never, he's never far away. He's very much aware. Number five, God in his sovereign rule over you loves you as creator. And if you belong to him by faith, God loves you as father. You know, there's a verse that says, uh, Esau I God was it Jacob I Esau I hated and Jacob I loved, or vice versa. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And it's quoted again in Romans 9, it's from the Old Testament. And some people says that proves that there are people God hates. And uh, you know, I, I just I don't believe that. I believe that's a, a Hebrew idiom to talk about choice. But one of the things I really want to say to you, and, and I can say it with, I feel like, without equivocation, and that is that in his sovereign rule, God loves you. He loves his creatures. He loves you personally. Because remember, we just got to establishing that he knows everything about you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows everything about you. And I want to say to you, he loves you. Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 136, give thanks to God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God and anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So, so know this, without equivocation, without any hedging on my part as far as my meaning, I say to you clearly that God in his kingly rule loves you and wants you to be a part of his kingdom. He wants you to be a subject in his kingdom and receive from him everlasting life. And not just everlasting life, but he wants to receive you as a son in his kingdom forever. And the last principle, God in his kingly rule is responsive to my prayers. One thing God says, talk to me, ask me. The disciples asked him to teach them to pray, and he did. And then he shares this illustration about how if you bug a neighbor, he's going to help you. And then he says this, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened now suppose one of your fathers is asked by a son for a fish. He won't give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he's not going to give him a scorpion, will he? If the, he then being evil knows how to give good gifts to his children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So God hears, God answers. God's a father to, his, to us as kids. In the New Testament letter, he says, we have not because we ask not. Here's my point. God in his sovereign rule, in his omnipotence, he is responsive to our prayers. He, he's listening to us. Remember, because he's given us, in my estimation, he's given us a true measure of autonomy, and he's told us rule over this world. And though he's superintending his creation to bring it to this ultimate culmination where Jesus and his kingdom will inherit this earth, so he's bringing us to that place, he's, he's responsive to our prayers. I mean, he's listening to our prayers. He's answering in his sovereignty. He causes the sun to stand still for 24 hours. He raises the dead at times. He, he breaks his natural laws 
because of our prayers at times. God is responsive to our prayers. Don't, don't forget that. Don't, don't think you're just praying to the wind or praying to the... Remember this, God is hearing your prayers and he is, he's going to answer our prayers. Not, not always the way we want because remember, God is... You know, so often we're asking God to break natural laws, aren't we? We're asking God to do things that I think we find in, in general God doesn't do. We ask God to make people do this or make people do that. And I believe that God can bring blinding lights and big fish and seven years of insanity in their lives to make them change, right? But, but at the same time, God's just... God's not the cause of every individual person's decision that they make. So I'm finished with my principles. And so I think about those principles when I think of the sovereignty of God. I, 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 th those things are always in play in my mind, but it still doesn't really answer the question, God, why did you do this and not do that? Why did you take your sovereign power and, 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 and my mom died of cancer? Why didn't you do that? Or, or why, did, why did you take my little baby when, you know, when, God, they were only two years old. Why did you do that? Why didn't you, why didn't you intervene from heaven because you're sovereign and all-powerful? You can do whatever you wish. Why didn't you wish to do that? Those are questions that we just can't answer. But if you would take the principles that I just gave you, that God cares for you, God loves you, God is able to do whatever he wants, and God is ruling his world, he's not uninvolved. If you take all of that, that brings us to this application and, and, this is, and this is where I end, and this is what I want us to take away from today. Here's what God wants from us. And, and actually, whether you, whether, not on that position over there, because you don't think God cares, but whether you're God's all-causal control or God's control is, is tempered by his willingness to allow creaturely decisions that are real and responsible. If, if wherever you are on this side over here, here's what God wants of you. He wants you to trust his love. He wants, to, he wants you to trust his rule. And no matter what transpires, he wants you to follow him, forsaking all others, be faithful to him. That's what he wants from you. No matter your blood count goes down to three, 2,000, whatever it is. And then it keeps on going. It keeps on going. And then you die. God wants Audrey to trust in him. In other words, when, when, when whatever he does, whatever he chooses not to do in, in response maybe to our cries or whatever, you know, he wants us to trust him that he has not forsaken us, not forgotten us, not unaware of what's going on in our lives. He wants us to trust him no matter what. He's not an aloof creator. And he's neither is he the cause behind all the evil, sinful choices that men make, but trust him that in the end, his kingdom will prevail, his rule will be established, and you are going to be a part of his eternal kingdom forever. So whatever you're going through, whenever you go through it, trust him, love him, be faithful to him. Don't abandon him. Don't turn your back on him because, because he in his sovereignty and his omnipotence didn't do it the way you wanted him to do it. He didn't choose to intervene or he chose to intervene and do this or whatever. Just trust him. And then like the Apostle Paul, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, 
But the things that are not seen, those are eternal. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.